step inside into the world of Lady Teal's Curios. Good evening. Tonight we are joined by Leslie Hudson. Leslie is a kaleidoscopic human, as many of us creatives are. She spent most of the last three years on the road touring as a musician. Before that, she was a teacher for a decade and worked with kids a decade before that. She changed careers in her late 30s and left a 15-year marriage, as well as her house, car, city, and safety net. She made music her life and traveled through all 48 states on her first tour, which lasted six months. Leslie is a pansexual pagan and has seen the unseeable since she was a child. Many of these experiences have colored her work. She is an Aspie, a synesthetic, and knows a lot about people within moments of meeting them. She makes music, art, and sculpts tiny things. She reads a lot of folklore and watches a lot of Star Trek. She's an intersectional feminist who was raised in a fundamentalist Baptist household, so there were discussions along the way. We chatted last week, and our conversation went a million different directions, including topics on growing up in a fundamentalist household, what it's like to have synesthesia, and how her interests and curiosities color her music. Her ninth solo album, Keep Left at the Fork, drops tomorrow, March 19th, just in time for the spring equinox. Keep Left at the Fork is full of beautiful lyrics, piano and cello accompaniment, and themes that I'm sure many of you can relate to. Leslie was kind enough to send me a clip of the song, This Isn't You, from her new album, which I'll go ahead and play, and then we'll follow up with the interview. What did you hope you were gonna show? I didn't leave it all to turn back now. It's time to go and go, go. Feet on the ground, go and go, go. It's time to Good afternoon, Leslie. How are you today? I am doing great. Thank you. How are you doing? I'm doing awesome. So why don't you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Where do I start? I'm a musician. 
a full-time musician and I used to be a teacher before that and so and I switched careers like when I was in my late 30s um, so it's been an interesting journey uh, figuring out what it means to be a full-time musician in a world that especially at the moment is making it very difficult for us to be full-time musicians um, venues are shutting down all over the place and uh, tours are being canceled and gigs are being rescheduled and um, I'm fortunate this year that I'm not on tour um, because uh, the last three years of my life I have been on tour like the first tour I did was uh, six months long and that was in 2017 and it was called the goddess revolution tour and it was um i'd never done anything like that before but i had just left a 15-year marriage and uh, my city my house my car and everything was new and different and i just sort of lived from city to city sleeping on not very many couches, mostly spare bedrooms of, of friends and people that I know, musicians that I know across the states, mainly. I managed to hit 48 states in six months and three provinces. Oh, my goodness. That's amazing. <laughs> that was definitely like, okay, who am I without all of this stuff? Who am I if I'm not a teacher? Who am I if I'm not a wife? Um, and I've never been a mother and don't plan to be one. So who am I without all of these things? If I keep you know, the, the religion I was raised in, if I leave that at home and if I leave the people that I have outgrown, uh, you know, what, what happens when I'm just in a car by myself? Cause I, I'm a solo artist, so I, I tour alone too. And that's, you know, it can be daunting, <laughs> but I think I felt invincible when I left, um, at the beginning just thought like this is I'm just gonna go see what my new life's like it's been hard to recapture I have to say actually <laughs> and it becomes work I can imagine. right yeah right like after after a couple of years you're like okay do I I don't know you start to you have to start start establishing patterns that never existed before and once you are following those patterns then I don't know there's a comfort in not questioning them but you have to question them because you're still figuring out who you are and how you make this job work. Anyway, it's a, it's been an interesting three years. <laughs> so I'm guessing your music is often inspired by um, things that happen in your life, maybe events or th ways that you've grown as an individual, things that have impacted you. You want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, that was definitely true for my earlier work. Um, of course, I'm going to write about things that resonate for me and experiences in my life are going to influence, you know, what I'm drawn to writing about. But my, my primary focus is women's stories. I write women's stories. So um, I generally write first person character studies, like all my songs practically all of my songs, not all of them, practically all my story songs that are about women are written in first person. And my job when I read folklore mythology, which I'm an avid reader of, um, my job is to climb into those stories. And usually, depending on who the, the folklorist was and what their focus was when they were collecting stories, 
a lot of them are told by men and have been told by men, collected by men, edited by men, translated by men. Not all of them, but a lot of them have been. And so when you read collections like that, the focus tends to be on the male hero um, or the male character, the male antagonist, whatever it happens to be. Um, and so my job became to crawl inside of these stories and to look at them from the inside, from the woman's perspective. And even if she's marginalized in the story, I make her the main character. And what would she say in this space? What is she feeling in this space? And I have, because I'm synesthetic, um, it comes with the autism. <laughs> because I'm synesthetic, all my senses are all cross-connected. So uh, sound and the collections of sounds, so notes and phrasing and chords, keys that I'm writing in, all of those colorings, um, they have to match that story. They have to lift the story up. So it's not just the words, it's the music itself that has to be sort of sculpted so that you've got a, a true representation of how that woman would have spoken if anyone had bothered to ask her what she thought. So that tends to be my focus. You know, I never thought about that before, but you're totally right. Like every folklore story is usually told by a male or translated by a male. <laughs> and that's something that <laughs> I've never thought about that. It makes a huge difference in how the story is told, because when you start finding folklorists who are female, um, the, the stories they choose can be different than the, the stories that men have been choosing. And so it's, it's interesting who gets the voicing. And if you collect stories from female storytellers, um, the emphasis is different. It tends to be more varied, at least in my, in my experience of reading them. There, there's more of a variation of, like I just finished reading um, a, a collection of Chinese fairy tales and folklore. Mm -hmm. And, um, and because the two uh, storytellers that this particular collection was telling the stories of, because they were both male, but also came from, one was Confucianist, Confucianist and one was Taoist. And so they had very different philosophies and reasons for telling their stories. And though they're both male, one, one storyteller's tales have a lot more empathy and like we should take care of animals and, and people should be treated with respect versus um, if you can't buy your way out of this, it's not, <laughs> that's your own fault. <laughs> I don't know. There's a lot of like, a lot of class stuff that I, I really wasn't thrilled about in this particular collection. But I've read um, Yiddish folk tales that are beautifully told and, um, you know, there were a couple in the, the Chinese collection that I really liked. Um, but most of them in that particular book, uh, they were, they were focusing on on men's visions, men's opinions, men's lives. And I think we as women, and when I say women, I'm using the inclusive of that. Anyway, if you feel like you're a woman, if you feel like you identify with, with being female, then you are. That's my take on that. Mm -hmm. um, so women means all of us. And I don't know, um, I lost my train of thought now that I went off on that little tangent. <laughs> it doesn't matter. 
I'll, I'll find it again. The thread is is flailing in the wind in my mind at the moment, and I'm sure it'll it'll come back to me. Especially when I go back and listen well, to the podcast and be like, "Oh, that's um, what you were trying to say." Good job. <laughs> <laughs> that it always happens. <laughs> yeah. For those that don't know about synesthesia, can you explain it a little how that works? Sure. Um, from most people's synesthesia is, uh, it's like a cross connection of your sense of color and sound. For a lot of people, it's sound. With some people, it's um, particular, it's either numbers or it's particular words that take on a color. Uh, it tends to be color plus something else. And so if you're, you have a synesthetic um, mind, when you look at, when you're doing math, if your synesthesia is number related, doing math is, is like art. You know, it's, it's interesting. Um, you're, you're getting, a, you're getting, every time you read the letter or the number or the word, you're getting a flash of the color that that word also is or the color that number also is. And so you're always painting with a particular palette. When I write, when I write songs, I am painting every single, every song is a painting. And the chords that I use, the notes that I use, they're all connected to the, the colors that I see when I hear them. So I'm, it's like Bob Ross, you know, Bob Ross. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, he always, he starts with a palette and he tells you at the beginning of the story, of the story, his painting. He tells you what colors to use that day to make the painting he's about to make. So that's like me with the, with the chords that I'm going to use, with the, the colors I'm about to paint a song with. It's just these colors. And I'm allowed to play with them however I want inside the song, but I can only use these colors. Otherwise, the song will, it's just, the, the painting's marred, you know? For me, it goes a lot deeper because all of my senses are cross-connected. And I haven't met very many people who aren't, Aspies, like I, I was diagnosed with Asperger's when it was a, a particular diagnosis before it, it fell under the umbrella of autism. So I say I'm autistic, but I generally, generally refer to myself as Aspie, specifically because that was my diagnosis. Um, mm -hmm. So with mine, um, it, all of them are, are cross-connected. So when I hear a sound, that sound has a flavor and a texture as well as a color. It has a scent. So every single thing that I see or hear or taste or touch, all of those things are also giving me information um, via the other senses. Does that make sense? It's like a massive matrix yeah. of information that I have to sort through every second of my life. I was, I was going to say that sounds so cool like I would love to be able to experience that but on the flip side it sounds a little overwhelming to you it is definitely overwhelming at f especially at first um, when you're trying to figure out you're trying to figure all of that out and people are telling you like as a kid people are telling you you have to learn how to you know, be social and you have to learn how to play this game and you have to learn how to do your math and you have like they're expecting you to spend your brain space on learning those things that they teach in school or that they teach at home or whatever it happens to be or in church or whatever. I had church too. Um, they're expecting you to 
only fill your mind space with those things. And if you stumble along the way, it's the automatic assumption is, well, you're not bright enough to understand this. But what nobody understood, because I was diagnosed at 34, so it was an adult uh, diagnosis. I got through all of my schooling, my post-grad or my post-secondary um, stuff, all of my degrees, whatever. <laughs> I got through all of it without anyone knowing that I was autistic. And so because it's invisible, all this information that I'm gathering on a regular, like a moment-to-moment -moment basis, there's never any slack, you know, like no one... No one on the outside looks at the way I process things and says, wow, like you deserve credit <laughs> for how much you're processing and also that you're still paying attention to me. Like that, mm -hmm. that never happened in school for me. So I just had to, I honestly thought that everybody thought the way I did. It took a long time of me <laughs> observing humans um, for, you know, years and years. I'm still doing it to figure out that other people don't actually see that or perceive that, or I don't know. It was, it's just been a very long line of like, what you don't also that's strange. <laughs> oh, no wonder these things are easier for you because you don't have to be bogged down by all this other stuff. That makes sense. <laughs> I wonder if for women, it's more difficult to be diagnosed because my friend that I was telling you about earlier, who is also autistic, she wasn't diagnosed until she was an adult. And she kind of made the same comment. She said she became very good at observing people and learning how to act in society just based on watching other people. She was like, that's not how I wanted to act, but I had to. <laughs> Yeah, and the amount of effort that also takes. So now we're being bogged down and overwhelmed by everything that we are perceiving. Um, it's hard enough for us to explain it to ourselves. Um, you know, never mind trying to explain it to somebody else outside of our brains. And then on top of that, we have to put all of that effort into masking. That's what we tend to call inside the community. That's what we tend to call that act. Um, I think of myself as a chameleon. Um, it's one of the reasons why I think. I, I can play so many styles of music and then I, when I'm on stage, I can perform as several personas. Um, not that I'm changing clothes or anything, but that my whole body and face and vocal style will shift from song to song to song, depending on who's, whom, whose story I'm embodying, you know? I think I was, mm -hmm. I was trained. <laughs> I have been, I have trained myself to be good at that because um, masking is a huge part, especially of girls, um, autistic girls. I read a study or I read um, the scientists that had put out a study in the last few years that admitted that because they hadn't been studying autistic girls all of this time, it was like a 10-year study, since they hadn't, <laughs> they hadn't paid attention to autistic girls and how, how autistic girls function and um, you know, they'd, they'd only been looking at the boys because the boys stick out more than the girls do. Girls are better at, at masking, possibly. I don't know. We process things. We tend to have flown under the radar. So nobody suspected it of me either. I was just a little strange. You know, she's, Leslie does things her own way. Yep, she does. <laughs> <laughs> she sure does. Um, but it takes all that extra effort. We have to put in that extra effort to be like, 
to look more like other people are comfortable with. You know, it's really tiring. <laughs> but I don't get exhausted by it. Like it's just normal for me. What's exhausting is having mm -hmm. to pretend that I'm not that. That's exhausting. And you shouldn't have to. No, but it's a lot easier to get through life um, on, on one level. It's a lot easier. It seems like the better choice um, because I'm not sure how you were raised, but I was raised with physical punishment um, when I strayed from whatever, whatever was deemed to be correct behavior, and that was determined by uh, biblical, literal, biblical interpretations of whatever. Mm -hmm. I was definitely raised similarly. I had to go pick my own switches out of the backyard <laughs> if I was in trouble. <laughs> but that only lasted, I mean... I, I do, like, I remember the last time that I got spanked, and it, it had to be, like, when I was eight, seven or eight years old, so. Yeah. For me, it was a leather strap, and it sat in the yep. hallway. It just sat up on the, I, I had to walk past it every day. Um, yeah, I'm, I am still, I'm 42, and I'm still unpacking that shit. <laughs> that is a... Uh, um, in the autistic community, we've got, there are certain types of behavioral correction that are deemed to be abusive uh, by the community. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I look back and nobody knew I was autistic at the time, but I sure, I sure had my behavior corrected, you know, like it, it with pain and fear. And I think as we both know, <laughs> that can only be effective for so long, you know? Right. And mm -hmm. I was trained as a warrior as a result. Like I, I became belligerent because I was hurt and because I was controlled through fear. And especially what's so tricky about it is that they're loving people. Like it was done by loving people who thought they were doing the right thing by hurting me. Mm -hmm. And it's, that is so hard to unpack. It's easy to unpack, you know, someone who abuses children um, that's a clear abusive presence. That stuff is a lot easier from the outside to look at and say, that person is a bad person, you know? But these, these people, yeah. my parents are not bad people and they're very different than they used to be. And they're, they're remorseful about how they used to be. And that counts. That, that is really important. And I'm, I'm proud of them for making that journey themselves, you know, and parents, are just people like everybody else and they are unpacking their own trauma. They're unpacking their own childhoods too. And if there's not enough support and I don't know how your experience compares, but in, in the church community I grew up in, mental health is not a thing you discuss. It's not on the table. Absolutely. Yeah. You pray it away. <laughs> and it's your own fault if you're depressed because you're not praying hard enough and you're not asking for God's grace enough or whatever the version of it is. Um, that's your own fault. It has nothing to do with the fact that your own mother was, was assaulted or that, um, you know, that your father um, was beaten as a child. Like those things carry through. We know that now. Um, it's in our DNA. We inherit our parents' trauma and their parents' trauma. 
even without the the nurture aspect we're still inheriting that and we have to unpack it that's our job it feels like if we're going to be healthy people but god is it a lot mm-hmm. to, <laughs> it's a lot to unpack <laughs> i so can relate on many levels just just um having to unpack that my parents are still in their cult and they they still believe the things that they do and they do not talk to my brother and myself and my sister doesn't talk to my brother and myself my brother came out as gay a while ago and has openly denounced that religion and I try to be very careful about it because there's so many people like you were saying there's so many people who are good people they just don't realize how much harm they're doing and it's it's so like trying to explain that to people who never grew up in a religious household or in a fundamentalist household it it's really hard to get that across. So I definitely know where you're coming from with that. Yeah, it's, it's okay. Like I find if I'm talking to somebody who understands and came from the same space, we can be very critical together about what happened there because there's, we lived it. <laughs> we lived it mm-hmm. so we can criticize it. Um, it's much more difficult when someone from the outside dismisses it out of hand. Like the whole thing is a mess. The whole thing was, um, was garbage. The whole thing is garbage. I find that sometimes um, anti-religious people, like specifically against religion people, uh, mm-hmm. are dismissive of the experiences that many of us share um, and are trying to, I think, in good faith, unpack for ourselves. We're not just throwing the whole thing out necessarily. We're trying to figure out like, well, if, you know, if gratitude is a part of your upbringing, even if it's melded into a twisted worldview, gratitude itself is not twisted, you know? If you can take what mm-hmm. if you can take that one value that you learned out and take it forward with you as a person, there's value in that. And it's if it was taught to you from the beginning of your life, then you have a long established history with gratitude. And that's a good thing. It's just really hard to explain that to somebody who wants to throw the whole thing out and dismiss the entire the entire community as being worthless, you know? Yes, definitely. It's interesting. A lot of the people that I've talked to, um, doesn't matter their career or their hobby. I talk to a lot of interesting, unique people on the show. And a lot of people, their uniqueness came from some sort of trauma or some sort of um upbringing that led them to finally say, you know what, I'm not going to live like that anymore. I'm going to live my own authentic way. (laughs) And it kind of sounds like that's where you're coming from, too. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think we begin unique. And we're subjected to trauma as a unique person. And because we are unique, we find a unique way to survive it. Or we don't. And it's not... You know, it's not a person's... Oh, sorry. No, no, it's fine. It's not a person's fault if they don't find a way to survive it. Like, I 
I struggle with that all the time. Like what, what does surviving it mean? Like, what does it look like? And there's so many different opinions about how to heal from trauma. And um, what I have is a visual, one of my tours I did, I called the psyche tour. And I have as part of my inner work, there is a, um, the image of a table, a round table in my head. And at that table are many seats and different women sit in those seats. Um, like trauma, for example, she has a seat at the table. But when I was growing up, I didn't understand that she was a part of me. You know, it just seemed like a thing. Everybody around me was telling me, well, just get over it. Parents spank their kids all the time. It's not a big deal. I'm like, actually, it's a really big deal. It was physical abuse as far as I'm concerned. And even though it was done from a place of love, it still had a massively traumatic effect on me. Um, with my little nerves uh, turned up to 11 because autistic nerves tend to be, <laughs> our brains tend to process pain at very acute levels. And uh, I had to do all kinds of work just to survive the pain of it, you know? Um, and then the emotional pain, the emotional baggage is with you. And, and then you have to try to figure out how to deal with that. But I, I don't subscribe to, and everybody's got their own way of dealing with this. I'm not, I'm not telling anybody else how to feel, but um, personally, I don't subscribe to the idea that um, you got to heal it and then move on. Trauma it has a lasting effect. And so I'll never be free of it. And that's not, that's not because I'm being silenced by it or because I'm being tied down by it. It's that I'm, I'm maintaining my, my coping strategies help me to maintain my relationship with my trauma. If I never listen to her and don't give her a space to be a part of the round table, then she's, she is silenced. Like that is the only way to silence her as far as I'm concerned. I want her to know that she gets to have a turn speaking. If something comes up, like rage is there. I've got rage. I've got justice. I was that kid who always said, that's not fair. <laughs> <laughs> do that better it's not fair <laughs> cut that cut that in half perfectly no it's not fair I was that kid everything was about <laughs> I thought fairness um but what I was actually searching for was equity because I was surrounded by oh. men who told me constantly either to my face or you know to the congregation as I sat there that women were lesser people than men that women couldn't speak for themselves, they couldn't plan for themselves, that they only had one course through life, and that was to become pregnant with their husband. And if even if they were in a uh, domestic violence situation, they shouldn't leave it. Or if they leave, they should go back. Like, it's ridiculous, awful shit <laughs> that sometimes gets taught <laughs> and doesn't get challenged enough by people like me who are growing up in it. So I, I challenged the hell out of it. Um, towards the end and I have challenged it ever since and I feel very much like it's my that's my responsibility to keep talking about it um, not to bury it or to get over it but to have the conversation we should always be allowed to have this conversation I think I totally agree it's such a hard I mean just listening to you is just like bringing back floods of memories <laughs> 
of, of being told not to have this conversation and not to speak up. And especially as a woman, you were to be submissive and all of these things. So yeah, it's, it's a little overwhelming for many, but like you were saying, um, everyone finds their own way of dealing with it and you always have it and it's a piece of you. And I, I do feel like people who have gone through something similar, they grow stronger because of it. We hope, we hope like if you've survived it, yeah, you found some way to do that. Not, not all of us can Mm -hmm. survive it. Yeah, exactly. Going back a little bit to your music, um, you were saying that, you use that as a storytelling platform. And so a lot of the stories that you tell, are they kind of along the same lines, like women who are going through um, various hardships? Or I, I noticed like when I was going through your your discography, <laughs> there was everything from um, you had some nerd music up there <laughs> to, um, to, I guess, fairy tale type stories. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, the common link is, I think, um, over and above just they a lot of them being stories um, that I'm telling from the perspective of women or female characters um, is passion. I'm, I really want to women. I'm not just, it's not just women, but I'm speaking about them because I'm an advocate for women's stories. Um, It's not, I have been said, I have been told by um, one other podcaster at one point, you know, that it's really important for us to find balance um, and that I should be using my platform to preach balance. And I was like, yeah, that's not my job. Um, all of us together as a group, if we're all speaking our truth and we're all listening to other people's truths, we will achieve balance. But it's not my job to, prevent, to, to present a balanced view of life. My, my view is personal and specific. And I think we need a lot more women speaking up and telling our stories because there are loads and loads and loads of men doing it. So it's important that we as women do it too. Um, I don't focus that way to be alienating. I, I hope that in just the same way that women have had to read, find themselves in stories about men. Like if I read the Harry Potter series and the main character is Harry Potter, but I can still identify with the character. It doesn't matter that he's male. Like that shouldn't, we're so used to doing it um, that a lot of men are, they don't put the work in to become used to doing it too, you know, to get to the point where they're used to doing it too. If you're reading a story and the main character is a woman and you can't identify with her at all, what is wrong with you? (laughs) That that is ridiculous. Like the doctor who uproar when they brought in Jodie Whittaker to, to play the doctor. And then all of these fanboys losing their minds because because how I can't relate to her. Well, we, but I can relate to the other doctors. I can relate to Chris, to Eccleston and to Tennant. And like, I can relate to those characters, even though they're male. That's the difference. We've had to put the work in just because of the, the, disp- the disparity and, um, you know, the, the kinds of works that we're introduced to, I think as kids, especially if you're raised as in a fundamentalist type, uh, male dominated 
community. The things that you're being given, the words that you're being given to read and identify with are coming from male perspectives. So you have to, as a female, try to figure out, well, where do I fit here? Like, how can I also learn this lesson? Um, so I try to do that in one of my albums is called the Redhead League. And that was my imagining of, I, I took nine female redheaded comic book characters and I wrote songs from their, each of their perspectives. And if I was putting together a, a, like a comic book character league of sorts, those are the women I would put together. Um, not because I want, I make this point in the last song, actually. Um, it's not because we all think alike. It's because we have different thoughts. We have different motivations. And we can still be a collective and a sisterhood, um, you know, without having to agree on everything all the time. That's the great, this great divisive knife, sword, whatever you want to call it, bulldozer sometimes, <laughs> that gets driven through <laughs> marginalized voice um, communities. Is, is this, well, this, this great what I'm very used to coming from fundamentalist Baptists or any Baptists really is this, this great dividing line. You know, they draw this big line on the ground and on this side, you're going to hell and on this side, you're going to heaven. Like, and there's no room for, there's no room for gray. It's, it's very judgy and, you know, defining oneself by what you're not. Well, we're not that, you know, we would never do that. Like, I remember my mother saying to me one time, Leslie, why did you never learn that God was love? And I was like, did you see my upbringing? <laughs> you were there for all those church services and stuff, right? Like, have you not been listening? I have not experienced that personally. I got to tell you, God is judgment. That's what I experienced. Loads and loads and loads of judgment. Because everything I feel to be natural and true to myself like I, I would describe myself as pansexual. I, what I would have if I had been born into the world, you know, um, in this last generation instead of a couple generations ago, I would have seen myself as gender fluid or non-binary, depending. I've, I've not been able to unpack any of that stuff until the last little while. So I'm still working out where I fall. But pansexual is how I describe myself for quite a long time because it was, well, it's everybody. It's not just men or women. It's, the, it's a soul-to-soul -soul connection. So it doesn't matter what the soul's wearing today <laughs> or this life. You know, it's just, it's the soul inside. It's the, the spark of the consciousness of that person that is attractive to me. It, it almost doesn't matter what's going on. I'm, you know, as far as being open to a connection with a person, it doesn't matter what clothes they're wearing. And I mean that like flesh and bone, like that kind of, those kind of clothes <laughs> too. <laughs> Do you mind if I ask, is that one of the reasons why you left your 15-year marriage? Um, that's a good question, and I don't mind. Um, I didn't realize or admit to myself that I was pan until I was already married. It was very quickly after I had just gotten married, actually. And so it was... It's not why... Um, it's not why there were, there were other reasons, but I definitely felt, um, like I'd missed some kind of opportunity there because now I was, now I was stuck in a, in a way, um, not to say, 
I mean, my ex-husband is an amazing human being. I have no, I have nothing bad to say about him. He's really supportive and wonderful. We just weren't that anymore, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've, I've never been entirely comfortable being tied. Um, It's, it's tricky for me to navigate that because I'm, I spend so much time working through my own shit and also processing my, my perceptions that there's not a lot of room unless I really, really devote time to it. There's not a lot of room for me to, you know, have another person's needs and wants and, and life, uh, a focal point in mine. Does that make sense? It's yeah. So if somebody is that, then they are getting, it's, it's not just a sacrifice. Um, it's, it's devotion. Like that, that takes devotion for me to actually, not that I'm, do you know what I mean by devotion? Like it's not an, I'm not idolizing a person. I just mean, um, I have to devote or I choose to devote that time inside my own mind and that, that space for that person to also exist there, it takes a lot of work. I'm sure it does for everybody. But I've got so much noise going on all the time that I really, really have to, have to carve that space out and protect it. i got to protect it. So, yeah, but not having the, the marriage part of it is, is nice. I, I like that um, not being a part of my life anymore. That's for sure. <laughs> Very cool. It's it's something that as I've gotten older, I, you know, society instills this belief that marriage is something that everybody should do. And as I've gotten older, I realize it's not for everyone. Like everybody doesn't have to get married and it shouldn't be looked down upon if you are married or you're not married and it's just one of those things that if it works for you, then it works. And that's great. <laughs> and if not, then that's great too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, to be, I suppose it's a form of rebellion for a woman to not get married. Um, but mm-hmm. I, I don't really see it. I don't want it to be about that because a lot of things in my life have happened have happened as acts of rebellion Um, because at first that's what was required to break free Um, but it's it's more important at this point in my life for me to try to figure out what is it that I who is it that I actually am not who am I fighting against but who who am I actually it's it seems like a pretty straightforward question but um, because I did all of that masking, um, the way I talk about it is like I developed a super conscience. So I have, I have my conscience that dictates like, this is what I think is right and wrong. And this is, this is how I feel I should behave in the world. But that did not jive (laughs) at all (laughs) with how I was raised or the people I was around. So I, I learned, I created a super conscience and it's like a cap that sits over top of my actual conscience and it's so well developed and so hard and thick and 
perfectly like cared for at this point that undoing it is taking it's it's taking a lot of work a lot of mental space for sure it's all the shoulds you know like what i mm -hmm. what i try to do is every time i say to myself i should do this if, even if i just feel feel it i should be doing this i should feel this way i have to um i have to stop and i have to face it as an isolated thought and push everything to the background every time a should comes up and and i have to be devoted to that process too because that i mean it's easy to just ignore them that's the whole point that's how they build mm -hmm. <laughs> so that's why they stick around um so i always ask like, where is this coming from this should because some shoulds are good some shoulds keep us out of jail you know like <laughs> there's <some Yeah. laughs> like we all agree if we live in a society we all agree to abide by certain rules so we don't all die like that is that is a thing that matters that's important um, <laughs> even if i don't like them and they're not my natural you know bent um i still have to abide by them for me that's a lot of driving rules like there's some driving rules that i think are stupid like if you're driving through montana and the speed limit is 80 miles an hour that's great um but you're not it's not bad if you go 85 or 90 like i don't see the difference really they're big flat yeah. <laughs> open roads you can see everything coming like nothing can sneak up on you everything is wide and open and it's very clear so i'm not saying drive unsafely i'm just saying if a cop pulls me over because I'm going five over a speed limit, like 80 miles an hour, I don't, that is a money-making tactic. <laughs> that's, that's all that is. That's not for my safety. That's a dumb rule. There's a lot of things I think are dumb <laughs> rules. <laughs> I got to watch it. <laughs> I think you and I would get along very well <laughs> because there, there are so many rules that I'm like, that is just, dumb come on yeah I, I don't like it i don't like it hey curious minds if you're like me you probably love podcasts history and stories about the paranormal one of my favorite podcasts is homespun haints check out their promo here and give them a listen ghost stories are always scarier when they're told by the very people who experienced them I'm Becky. And I'm Diana. And we're the hosts of the Homespun Haints podcast. We talk to people just like you who've come face to face with ghosts, demons, haints, and other strange paranormal phenomena. All of it makes for a chilling good time. So grab yourself a sweet tea, turn off the lights, and listen to some eerie, true ghost stories on Homespun Haints. I'm not scared. Are you? And now, back to the show. Well... I know we've kind of gone all over the place, yeah. Here, which which is totally fine. I love it. Um, I know you mentioned you do art and you sculpt things as well. What what type of art do you do? Um, well, I have I did art in school and like high school, and I I like to draw, um, and I took watercolor classes and I like to paint, but. I also, I like to make tiny things. So I, I use Fimo generally and like little stones or acorns or whatever. And I make the tiniest of tiny little, little creatures or I reproduce things. Like I, 
Do you know um, the old Star Wars movies? Not the new ones, the old ones. <laughs> um, Max, Max Rebo, who's that elephant, blue elephant guy who plays the circular piano. Um, yeah, yeah. You remember him? Yeah, so I made, um, I made a pendant of him the size of a quarter, smaller than, um, with perfect detail, all the little keys that go around him and like the proportions all correct and the coloring all correct. And it took me two hours. And I was like, this is great, but I could never sell this because no one's ever going to pay me, <laughs> you know, how long it actually took and how difficult it was to make. No one's ever going to pay that for a thing that's the size of a quarter. <laughs> like, it's just not. <laughs> so like, and one time I made my dad, um, I made him a chessboard. I made the board and it was black and silver. And um, I'm one side was Star Wars and one side was Star Trek. So they would, they would have to <laughs> compete against each other. So I made all the little figures, but they ma I made them all different. So um, they're all about an inch tall. And um, so I made an Ewok and a Stormtrooper and like Luke Skywalker and all those people. And, and then I made Guinan and I made um, Deanna Troy and Data and Worf and like Romulans. And anyway, I, so they, <laughs> I made all of these things. It took me five months um, from conception to completion to do that whole project. And I'm, my, I don't think my dad knew what to do with it when I gave it to him. Because... <laughs> What do you do? I mean, that's, that's with a, an unexpected with a tiny gift. Little... <laughs> that sounds awesome, though. <laughs> yeah. Now he has them on display. All the little, he took them all out of their box and all the little pieces, figures, and they sit in like one of those little display boxes so you can actually see them. If I were to do it again, yeah. like I would make them better next time. But <laughs> I don't see myself committing, like, again, I could never that's a five month project. There's no way I could sell that for what I, what I would need to make it a living, you know? So I just tend to right. make little things for myself or for specific events or uses or whatever. Well, speaking of making a living is your music, what keeps you afloat these days? Yep. Yep. And has for the last, um, the last three years, as soon as I started touring, well, as soon as I moved out of the house, right? Then I was like, well, <laughs> um, sabbatical's over <laughs> because I, I was a teacher for a decade and then I worked with kids for 10 years before that. Um, I was a day camp counselor and a tutor and all that kind of thing. Um, a mm -hmm. coach, a coach volleyball. Fun. Yeah, it was fun. That was my sport, my favorite of the sports. I was raised by, um, I was raised by a coach. Like my dad was my coach and he was, he has a phys ed degree. So he was a primarily a coach and then also a math teacher. So he was, he was my math teacher. He was my principal. He was an elder at my church. Uh, he was, I mean, he was all the things. He was my coach. So when I went to university, I was like, Oh, um, I'm going to go somewhere where I'm just a number where it's so big that nobody knows who I am. And it was great. Um, but yeah, so making a living off of music is fairly new to me. I've had to do a lot. I've had a very steep learning curve because there's a lot to catch up on. And when you're, I'm the, 
the musician and the booking agent and the PR person. And I still have to do all of the, the writing and I have to do all the recording and I have to arrange all the funding. And it's a constant juggling act of all of these different responsibilities, hats I have to wear. But as soon as you start outsourcing, you cut into your income. So it's, it's kind of a, you know, you have to decide like, is it worth it? Am I going to make, I'm going to make more. Am I going to have, because it would be nice to outsource all the things I don't like, like social media, mm -hmm. <laughs> all the PR <laughs> stuff. Oh, I do not enjoy any of it. I enjoy very much being creative. Um, but I want someone else to tell everybody about it. Like I would rather, <laughs> I would rather not have to do that part of the job, but that's not an option. When you are an indie artist, you got to do that work too. Right. That's, I mean, pretty much in any art field, that's, I think the main thing people struggle with is they have to wear so many hats and, and you don't want to give it up because it means that's part of your income. But at the same time, you could totally use the help. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it would be nice. Um, one day. Yes. One day. What was the name of the tour that you were on last year again? Um, well, I've done many. Um, I do most of my touring in the States. And every time I go on a leg, I call it something else. So the first one was called the oh, okay. Goddess Revolution Tour. That was in 2007. Okay. I know you mentioned you were pagan. Is that like a pagan type tour? Or is it just an all women type tour? Or well, that one specifically was, I have no idea what I'm doing. So I'm going to book all kinds of gigs and I'm going to share tour legs with different kinds of musicians. Um, uh, okay. And so I, it was, I mean, I called it, I called it that, but there was no common theme except I'm going to go figure out my life now. And actually the, <laughs> the album that I'm releasing on Thursday, um, March 19th, um, on the spring equinox that album came from that six months on the road because i only went home like when i say i went on tour for six months i literally i left i was gone for a month i spent two days in the toronto area not home but with friends that are from home mm -hmm. and then i was back on the road for five months straight so i didn't actually come back into canada you know until August or something and that was in BC and and then I was back down to the states again so it was a lot of I was in the U.S. for a very long time and most of my touring happens in the U.S. so far um but the yeah that that particular tour was the one that took me through 48 states so the album itself is um is 13 songs that take you they each hold the space for one of 13 steps on a journey into another space. Um, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Frouds. Uh, Brian and Wendy Froud are, uh, they're artists and creators from the UK. And they helped make the Dark Crystal, if that's a, a touch point. Um, mm -hmm. Brian, Brian is a, a painter. And, and Wendy does the 3D modeling, like the actual dolls. And they're both, um, they both release like books about the fairies and imagery of the fairies and all kinds of things. And so they have these two yeah. Oracle decks that are uh, fairy 
paintings and then all the things that go with them. And I have both of those. I've had them for a very long time. And so um, at the end of the Heart of Fairy Oracle, which is the second deck they put out, the last 13 cards are what they call a journey into fairy. And which is, you can take that literally, or you can take it as a metaphor going into another space. So for me, those six months were, I was really going into that other space. And I wrote one song before I left. And the rest of them I wrote when I got back. And I realized that this was the, I like concept albums. I really like concept albums. I want to tell, I want the album to tell a story and then the songs themselves to tell parts of that story. So um, the album's called Keep Left at the Fork because my experience with fairy or going into an other space, the wild space, is that if you take the fork to the right, you're going back to society. That's the way back to the um, civilized town or whatever, <laughs> like where all the people are. <laughs> but if you stay left and you keep going left, you're, you're going into the other space. That's the, the wilds. And that's where the fun stuff happens, the, the real transformative stuff. So it starts with a blessing because every good folktale has to start with a blessing. Um, and if you're going out on an adventure, you want to get like your food packed or your, your mom's um, wise words or like, you know, when you see this happen, make sure you always feed, you know, whatever. There's always these little, little motifs where you get advice before you go on your, your journey. And um, it ends with the returning. And right before you return is the gift. The gift is the 12th stop on that, that um, journey itself. And if you're lucky, if you've taken all the steps as you go through, you'll receive some kind of gift before you come home again. And I, I said, um, so last year I did a Kickstarter for it. And this is my first, it was my first Kickstarter. It was terrifying because I was already committed financially to all the things I was doing and I did not have the money. <laughs> so it's like, okay, <laughs> here's leap <of> faith. <laughs> um, and we made it like I had written all the songs and I had been performing a lot of them um, on my subsequent tours. But last summer um, before last, yeah, beginning of last summer, I was like, okay, here's the timeline. I drew up the timeline and it was, it was a brutal timeline. <laughs> like I, you know, we started recording the first weekend of June, and by the 24th of June, all of the musicians had to have all their tracks done, and then they were submitted to the, the producers, and then they had a month till July 24th um, to get all the tracks mis mixed and mastered. That's, that's a crunch, like that's a really uh, crunched up timeline. And while that was happening throughout from the summer solstice um, into July, I was running the Kickstarter. So it was like, make the album, produce the album, do all the layout, all of that stuff while running a Kickstarter campaign. And hopefully we fund it all. And we did. So I was, I'm very, wow, very glad of that. But what happened in the middle of that was the, the day I went down, I went down to Michigan to record my vocals. And the day I arrived, it's May 31st, I got a text from my mother that said that she had just been diagnosed with cancer. And so I went, okay, what do I do? Because every, everything had already been put in motion. Like I'd spent all of May, which was one of my only months home last year. Um, I was on the road for eight months of 12 last year. 
and so in May, I had spent all of this time coordinating all the artists I had involved, all the musicians I had involved, and then all of the production people and, and figuring out all the Kickstarter stuff. So it was already in motion and to stop it would have been not impossible, but very difficult. And I had just gotten down into the States and my mom, she didn't need me to be there like from her words, you know, like it wasn't, mm -hmm. I couldn't have done anything by being there. So I kept going, but I didn't tell anybody. I didn't tell the musicians I was working with. I didn't, I, I kept it quiet. I didn't tell anybody during the Kickstarter campaign because I didn't want anyone. Oh, we better give to Leslie's Kickstarter because her mom has cancer. I didn't want my mom's situation to be dragged into that. Like, so I didn't say anything until I think there were three days left of the campaign and we funded. And so I had, it was the th a Thursday night and my mom was going in for her surgery five weeks after her diagnosis um, on the Friday. And it was a nine hour procedure. And so that I was very, very, very lucky that I funded the night before that happened because it meant I got to take that day off, you know, of not thinking about that stuff, thinking about, um, my mom instead and that's the first time I said anything online was that she she was ill and she was in surgery and um, you know I, I, gave myself, I gave myself that one day um, but fortunately um, we funded it uh, even further we got to a, a stretch goal where I could put in all the lyrics which I've never been able to do like the lyric booklet into the the album mm -hmm. and I dedicated the album to my mom, which I've never Aww. done before. And I got to read it to her, the dedication, um, after she came out of surgery. And because of the type of surgery she had, um, I wasn't sure, we, none of us were sure when she came out if she would be able to speak again. And so it was like, I think in the back of our heads, we're sometimes prepared at least theoretically prepared for the big, the big illnesses to hit us or to hit our family members. Like, you know, cancer comes, okay, there's probably a lump and the lump has to be cut out or there has to be, you know, the chemo, the radiation, like mm -hmm. all the things that come with it. But um, I was not prepared for it to be something that would affect her ability to speak. So she, she would still be alive, but not be able to talk to me. I, I never prepped for that. There's no part of my life where I ever spent a moment thinking about that. And it, it was, it was a rough two weeks, you know, following while well, I'm trying to get, the, I got the album submitted and I had to go to press because I needed to get it down to Denver. So it would arrive there in time for a convention I was um, the guest of, uh, the guest of honor, musical guest of honor at. And so all of these things needed to still fall in line. And then I had to go on tour. I had to tour the album. So it was like, um, where do I make space for this emotional connection, this emotional understanding? Like, how do I, how do you even carve out space for this and still be okay to get on stage, you know? and still be okay to say, hey, everybody, this is my new album. Um, oh, my goodness. It was really, I probably didn't do it perfectly. 
I don't think I did. I don't think there, there can't be like a perfect way to do that. There's, no, I mean, no, if I had to do it again, yeah, if I had to do it again, I would not, even without what happened with my mom, which I had not planned for, um, trying to do all of that in a year when I spent eight months out of 12 on the road is, is dumb. (laughs) It's just, I mean, it's not bright. Or, Um, or ambitious. (laughs) Maybe don't, maybe not eight. Maybe fewer than eight months on the road. Maybe that. So by the time I got home, because I didn't get home till September, and then I was home for a bit, and I had to go back out on the road again in October for a couple weeks, and that is one of the hardest things I've ever done, because I was beyond broken by that point, like just emotionally. Um, and my psyche was cracked. Like it just felt like I had pushed myself way beyond what I should and this is a right, this is the right use of should, <laughs> but I should have <laughs> let myself take on. Um, and I did cancel a couple of shows to give myself more time um, at the turnaround, you know, in September, but I, I couldn't cancel all of them. I needed to go down for those few, but getting through those few were, it was hard. That's when all of my professionalism had to come into play. I was very glad that I had I had the chops because inside it's just like, everything's crumbling. (laughs) And when I got home, I made Mm -hmm. the decision that this year in 2020, I would not tour. I needed a lot of time to recover and to, to find my feet again. Um, But while I'm home, I still, I still have to release the album and I still need to do all the PR and I still have to be sort of accessible. Um, It's tricky as artists to find when your life is creation, like your livelihood is creation. It's tricky to find a way to keep refueled because you're constantly creating and giving and making and people are receiving from you. And at least for me, I'll, when I feel stressed or threatened, I will shut down the, I'll close all the bridges, you know, (laughs) no one's allowed in. (laughs) And that means that I'm not getting replenished. You know, it's not good. It's not healthy, but that is my natural inclination. If people, if I start feeling stressed, everybody get out, (laughs) you're all evicted (laughs) from my life. I just need to be, just need to be here now alone by myself for a bit. And I hibernate for the winter. So I have done that. It's been very nice um, hibernating. But I don't intend to be on stage again, really, until the fall. You said you have the new album coming out. That's exciting. And where where can people find it if they're interested in giving it a, a listen? Um, it will be well. It'll be on all kinds of platforms I've never been on before, so it's all new to me. Um, so CD Baby, Spotify, um, Amazon, Google Play, all of those places. Um, the standard places that you would look for music. I'm new to the whole streaming thing. I just have never set that up before. So this is my first experience with all of that. And, uh, and then it can be purchased um, from Bandcamp, uh, leslieHudson.bandcamp.com. And the physical albums, if people would like physical albums, they can be mailed 
um, from the site too. Uh, but a lot of it will be digital, I'm, I'm assuming. Um, I have a person, a friend in the States, um, who distributes my music for me within America because it's way cheaper <laughs> in the States. To, if you're not crossing the border, it's just so much, so much cheaper. Are you from Canada? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I should mention that. Yeah. I'm in Stratford, Ontario, and I grew up in Hamilton. You don't sound like you have an accent. Like, <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I think Southern Ontarians, like it depends on where you're from. There are certain pockets where, where you can hear the accent is, is sticking around. But like, if I go to Vancouver, they, I don't hear them with an accent. If I go to Colorado, okay. there's no accent. We sound alike. Like there's almost nothing that we say differently. It just sounds like I'm talking to people mm -hmm. from where I grew up in Ontario. Um, but if you go to Newfoundland or if you go to um, Cape Breton or if you go to um, like, uh, what is it called? Not Winnipeg, but around that, that area of Manitoba, there, there's, a, there's a lot of different accents across across the country even in Ontario different pockets will have them but yeah I don't if I, I haven't said about and out and stuff if I say that does it compare? <laughs> uh, um, my husband is from England and he's the only one in his family that doesn't have an accent but he they, they say he lost it on the plane ride over um, but there's still some things that he says, like the boot of the car instead of the trunk of the car. And, or, you know, there's little things like that, that he says often. And, and I'm like, oh, that's so cute. I wish I could have heard you when you had an accent. <laughs> but he's, he was born in Bournemouth, which is south on the coast. And he lived, he lived in Birmingham, which is a lot of people consider that the New Jersey of England. So his his grandparents all have like a, a very much Birmingham accent. And and then um the rest of his family, his mom's side, they all they their accents similar, but um you can hear a slight difference. But I accents always fascinate me. I I'm from the south and my family has a really southern accent. <laughs> so <laughs> I I tried when I was younger, I tried to not have such a southern accent, but there's still things I can hear myself saying sometimes where I'm like, darn it. <laughs> yeah. It's in the slant of the vowels, but, right? Like we just Yeah. Sometimes yeah. we can't that's why out and about is a a giveaway for Canadians. That's what I get asked that all the time when I'm touring in the States. Um, can you say out and about? <laughs> Fine. <laughs> and I'll say A. Sometimes I say A, but only usually once a day, maybe. Um, but sometimes I'll I'll say that, and they're like, oh, A. I'm like, ugh. <laughs> we don't all say it all the time. Depends on where you're from. Right, exactly. So you have, as you were saying before I went off on an accent tangent, sorry, um, <laughs> you have somebody here in the States that distributes the music for you. And that That's directly really cool. from the Bandcamp site. So if, if, um, 
if somebody wants a physical CD, they can order it through the Bandcamp site, lesliehudson.bandcamp.com. And, um, and then the, um, my person in the, in the States will ship them out if you're in the States. I also noticed that um, you have a Patreon too, and there's some really cool stuff on there. I was looking at like you have uh, sacred story studies, creative prompts, uh, folklore and fairy tale reviews. I think I'm going to have to sign up for this (laughs) because (laughs) this sounds really fun. It, yeah, it's a whole, I'm a kaleidoscopic person, as this discussion has probably demonstrated. Um, I feel a lot of things very strongly, and I'm interested in a lot of things, which is why I love the, the premise of your podcast. I love the idea of what makes a person tick, like what is unique about an individual. I'm all about that too. And when, from coming out of you know, a background like we have, it, it was my joy to discover that humanity was actually diversified and and you know this myriad of of color and sound and everyone said things their own way and thought things differently and oh my god it was amazing um so i'm very curious about people too i i really like um diving into their stories that's how i learn about a a people if i don't have direct access to persons in my life, then I can find out about them by reading their stories or listening to their songs. When I was a little, uh, a kindergarten teacher, I was a Montessori teacher. And when I, I taught kids, uh, the cultural studies program for me was the most important thing. And I put my focus there and I, I thought it was absolutely f- essential to teach kids to sing songs in as many, po- in as many languages as I could learn because I'm the only limitation, or I'd get them to teach me. Um, and we'd count in as many languages as possible, because, and we'd read stories from as many cultures as possible, because those are the links that will, you know, when, it, when we grow up and we hear someone sing a little song in Swahili, and we go, oh, I know that song, immediate connection. You know, it goes right back to childhood. There's now an immediate connection. And it it happens the same with stories when i there are certain stories that i read growing up that are part of my soul and it's so important i think to to spend time learning about other people and how other people feel and also about doing the inner work um in our own selves so what i what i talk about in the patreon i've got um three different levels and because i'm an irish pagan and I've, I have a Celtic studies degree. Um, that's what I specialized in at university. I studied old Irish and middle Irish and modern Irish and, um, archeology, span art, music, folklore, literature, history. Like I, I studied a lot of, a lot of different aspects of Celtic culture or Celtic cultures. Um, so I, I did try to make my Patreon originally just music and that does not work for me. (laughs) I can't, I mean, I can do it. I can write to spec, but I don't enjoy it. It's not fun. I want to just, and to me having to write a song every month and be, and, and like presented in this weird, to me, what feels like a weird way. I don't know. It just never stuck. I tried it for two years or something and I was so inconsistent and so terrible at it. Um, And then I decided last fall, when I came home and chose not to go back on tour for a year, I decided I would change. I would shift its focus. 
So, and I would write, I'd write about the kinds of things that I'm doing and that I'm interested in. And so some of it is grounding techniques and some of it is, um, some of it's magical, a lot of it's magical, magically focused. Now there's a lot of literary focused posts because I'm, I'm reading a book a year, a book a year, a book a week this year. And I'm reading, um, oh, wow. uh, uh, folklore. So I have to read a folk tale, a sacred story or a sacred teaching and a book, um, every week this year. I'm also writing a song a week this year. So a lot of that goes into the Patreon. Um, I, I post a lot. <laughs> so there's, there's a lot. So because of the Irish background, I, my three tiers are called the cauldron of warming this is a, a little bit like chakra teachings. The cauldron of warming is in the belly and that's your physical health and well-being. Um, and then the cauldron of motion, which is in the center, like solar plexus. And that's your, your vocation, your purpose. Um, a lot of that has to do with your purpose, your creative uh, processing in life. And then the cauldron of wisdom is in the head, the fire in the head, the Celts or Celtic cultures saw the Irish saw, um, that the, the soul sat in the head and that's where wisdom and inspiration comes and consciousness and all the rest of that. So, um, there's a lot more to that, that teaching. It's an old one. Um, but it sort of lines up with the chakra, the idea of the, the chakras in the body, energy centers in the body. So I named my three tiers after that. So cauldron of warming is all about is, like I said, grounding and shielding techniques because I am so overwhelmed all the time. I've done a lot of work on shielding. So I talk about that there and I talk about the books I've read and that kind of thing. And then Cauldron of Motion, there's a lot more of my creative process there and the music I'm working on. And, um, and then Cauldron of Wisdom is more magical studies. And then I have a three cauldrons tier. <laughs> That's, and then you get everything. If you sign up for the three cauldrons, you get you get all of that. Plus every month, all my patrons get, um, they get a song, um, a sto the story behind a song and the song itself. And they get a short story that I write and uh, a live music video because I'm up Aww. to three, I think 350 a month. So every time I, I make another hundred dollars per month, I, I add another thing something else that you get that month. That's so fun. It sounds like an awesome community. Yeah. I mean, I wish it was a larger community, but so it is, <laughs> it, it's, um, I really enjoy writing all of this and, and sharing the, the things going on in my head. Um, but I, yeah, I would like to grow it <laughs> for sure. Well, I will definitely share it with people because I there's so many people that would be into this kind of thing it's just putting it in front of the right people you know <laughs> that is the trickiest part is finding your people they are scattered mm -hmm. well I don't want to take up too much more of your time I like am so enjoying this conversation and I feel like it could go on and on forever <laughs> so one thing that I always like to end with is just like a little piece of advice for people out there. It could be for people with autism or synesthesia or creators out there. What advice would you give them? In my current state of mind, I would say the shadow is not your enemy. 
um, there's really so much to be learned from the darkness, either that we perceive around us or that we perceive within us. Um, it's not, it is not the enemy. It's not a dragon to be slayed. It's your friend. Um, that, that part of you, those pieces of you are essential to who you have become. Um, and so finding a space to honor those parts of yourself, I think is essential for anyone creative. I think it's essential for human beings generally, but um, if you can find a way to channel that darkness and that conversation with your own darkness through your work, all the better. Because that more than anything else is what I have found people connect to. Um, anytime I, I speak about it and I sing songs that touch on dark, awful shit, and that's on purpose because not that we need to live there, but some of us do live there and don't have the option of walking away from it. You know, we have to, and I think it helps us very much to share the story, the whole story, all the warts, all the ugly shit. <laughs> it's important. <laughs> it really is. And we all have warts and ugly shit that we have to deal with. <laughs> yes, we do. That's what's so freeing about telling the story. You, you say it out loud and suddenly you realize, oh, we all have this? Oh, my God, I was feeling so alone. No, no, no. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we all live there sometimes. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story today, Leslie. I really appreciate you coming on and everything. And I will post all of your links and everything in the social or in the um, show notes so that people can check you out online and make sure everybody check out her new album because it sounds so fun and yeah, I'm really excited about it. It's it's um it's lovely. 